episode four of the Broadband Podcast. Are you listening? We are recording this episode just before the end of the year. Uh, the rundown for this particular episode has a top 10 card prediction list for 2014. We're just going to kind of, me and Brody are just, we're batting around some ideas for some cool cards that we think are going to happen. We've got uh, a segment on tournaments, uh, running them, uh, playing in them, and ultimately winning them. Not that we know anything about winning tournaments. Not that, well, yeah. <laughs> not yet on a, not yet on a, not yet on Top a, half, not bad. Yeah, not yet on a Netrunner tournament, but I've certainly <laughs> won my fair share of tournaments in, in other games. So, um, and Brody has run a couple of tournaments I in have. other games. So we've got a good amount of tournament experience and, and hopefully uh, in particular for <laughs> Netrunner, we'll turn our, we'll turn it around. Uh, and the last is Act 3. As always, we've got a kind of a current event, a book, and a Q&A session. Stay tuned. Broadband Podcast. All right, we are so glad that you're back joining us for Episode 4. Uh, we have come back better, stronger, faster. We can, we can rebuild it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Daft Punk would be proud. Daft Punk would be, the bionic man would be very proud of what we're about to do right now. <laughs> so for this, our Act 1 segment, um, we're going to talk a little bit about our top 10 predictions for cards in 2014. We're just kind of throwing together a little bit of a list, some stuff that's been rattling around in our heads and some of the ones that we just came up with in the last two seconds. And <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we, you know, Brody is so um, good at reading a lot of the forums and kind of keeping informed on the latest events there. I am working on that. Uh, you may see me on Board Game Geek. Uh, I'm very straightforward with, uh, with my name, so you can contact me on there uh, if you see me. But I am not as informed. So the, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't read anybody that's kind of predicted the cards that we're seeing. But if you have, if I'm naming something you've called out there, please know that I, I, I don't know about you, and I, I don't do, I'm not doing it intentionally. So same disclaimer applies here. We're not, we're not actually trying to copy anybody. Yeah, yeah. If we got, if but you, if we do, if great you, minds think alike. And yeah, you, we are, we are flattered That's to share your thoughts. That's a credit to you. Yeah, really. really. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to say, like, <laughs> you know, we don't know. If you said this, then you're more than welcome to contact us and be like, hey, I said that on May 14th, and blah 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 blah. We don't know. All right, so my first prediction, I guess we'll alternate here. Sure. Uh, my first prediction is that we're going to see in 2014 a neutral runner console. Uh, I just think that that's kind of a Oh, yeah. No I, the minute you told me that, I thought, yep, that is, you know, that's, it's coming. It's yeah. got to be. It's, since they've introduced um, neutral cards that cost influence, you know, as a thing, uh, Oracle May and then um, the source that... It's only a matter of time till a neutral console pops up. That, and that's cool. I want to see what they do with that. Mm. So uh, mine is uh, likewise kind of a, I don't know if you want to call it obvious, but they, they show one card in the upcoming Honor and Profit as a priority. It's early bird. Priority, uh, make a run, then gain a click. I'm, uh, I'm making the obvious prediction that we're going to see priority cards become um, a bit of a thing. I don't know if they're going to be a criminal keyword. I suspect that they won't be, actually. I, I suspect that they'll be a broader event subtype that we'll see maybe not common but we'll see it on a few cards where uh it's the play only as your first click do a thing gain a click back and it'll be under the keyword priority and i think that'll I, i'm looking forward to see what they do with that design space yeah well my next prediction is 
part prediction and like most of this list, partly just something I want to see. And that <laughs> At is at least we're honest. Yeah, yeah. And that is that there will be uh, an asset in response to the chess suite from Anarch, their breakers, that there is going to be an asset. Um, I'm guessing maybe for Jinteki. Sounds like Just throw yeah. that out there. Uh, but a castle asset that, in effect, makes it so you can switch um, assets that are in a server. So <clears throat> you basically, maybe it's an asset that you advance or something like that. I don't want to get too specific. That way I'm not off. <laughs> I can still get credit if they do something like it. But I'd love to see an asset that, you know, maybe you could advance and then you can switch the asset that's in that server um, boomsies. Yeah. Uh, I think that, uh, on the, on the idea of a neutral console, I expect there'll be, we, to date we haven't seen any corp cards that are neutral and cost influence. I expect that'll change in 2014. And to be less generic, I expect it'll be a region, actually. I think it'll be an upgrade. Um, that's a region, has the region subtype, and, uh, will be something super special from the Android world, some sort of neutral ground that's also important to corps and will cost influence. That's a good. Ooh. I don't. I don't have enough of a grasp on the Android lore to point to any obvious uh, contenders for that that title, but I do think it will be a corp asset or a corp uh, region. A corp region that's neutral. Yeah, a neutral region. It's going to cost influence. But it's going to be a new one that's not listed yet, or it's pulled from the Android universe. And not I mean, no matter what, it'll runner. be in the Android universe because yeah, that's what this game is. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it'll be something that's been hinted at previously in the. Comments. I think that's so good. That's a really good prediction, especially since I see Netrunner advancing the, the Android story yeah. more than the other ones. Android yeah, yeah. is just blown up. So very good. I like that. Okay, so the next one I am super enthused about. I think this is um, a pretty good idea, and that is. An asset that turns bad publicity into, uh, in effect, a Chicana. So when the court builds up, let's say, three bad pubs, they then gain the ability to look at the first, at the, the next card that the runner is going to draw. Yeah. So it, 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 it kind of lately they've been encouraging corporations to take bad pub for certain benefits. Short-term game, yes. usually. Usually, yeah, it's been a little bit more of a short-term gain, but suffer the effects, you know, suffer the bad pub, and and to gain this certain ability, you know, profiteering and whatnot. So you get a, you score a profiteering, you take three bad pub, you get fifteen credits, but you've got you know those three bad pub that maybe you can't remove. Maybe they're, you know, they're a little bit more permanent or something like that, but you then gain the ability to take a look at what the runner is about to draw. It may not even be three. I could definitely see room for a card that just opens the design space of if you have bad publicity, you know, play only if you have bad publicity, or if you have bad publicity, this asset gains, blah, similar to, like you said, data leak reversal, where if the runner's tagged, you know, now I gain a power when I'm tagged, when I have this bad thing. I could see that. That's design space I see them exploring. Uh, well, I just think that you kind of, you have to build it up. And so I on the reverse side of that, I could see an NBN asset being sure. that you have three bad pub and then this you kind of gain that <laughs> look at the card. Yeah. So that invasive. Was, that was the idea. Yeah. And that's NBN. It's invasive. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? I'm going to look at your hand. I'm snooping. I'm, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I got special investigators. I don't know. <laughs> so go for yours. Uh, yeah. I um, 
again, this is half of it is just wishful thinking or something I want to see again. But um, I, I, I think Mythic Ice. I think we'll see another piece of Mythic Ice in 2014. Ooh, good. It was, uh, you know, it was really cool to see Chimera come out with that Mythic Ice subtype. And I feel that there's more design space than just, oh, pick code gate barriers or sentry in a game that type till the end of the turn. I feel like Mythic could be that kind of um, catch-all. It's not a trap, but it does something special and unique and cool. That's good. And I would like to see, and I think they will, I think they're, we're going to see at least one more piece of ice that plays with that Mythic subtype. Yeah, good good prediction. Okay, so my next one is a little bit uh, a little bit more of a tricky concept in that, that uh, I see an event that converts, uh, I'm calling it the Trojan horse, that converts viruses to stealth. So you play this event kind of like a, a Cyberdex trial that wipes viruses, that operation, but it's kind of the, the runner's version of that in the sense that it kind of takes these virus tokens and converts them into stealth tokens. Because I, it both... You mean stealth credits? Stealth credits, yeah. yeah. So it, it cashes in on that virus uh, economy and gives you an event that is a Trojan horse that takes those viruses and then converts them into stealth. I like stealth that. I like credits. that flavor, the Trojan horse. It's a virus that is stealthy. It operates below yeah. your awareness. Yeah. That's cool. So then are you talking like it would just... It's even cooler because I just came up with it, like, <laughs> just now. So I could pretend like it was, like, this deep thought that I had. Really? I just thought of it. No, but I like that flavor. Are you talking like it would, um like, remove uh, virus counters and then dump stealth credits on a card, and then you could just spend those stealth credits subject to the usual... Oh, like lockpick. If you dumped a pile of credits on it, you would just only be able to spend those, those credits on decoders or... Yeah, I mean, it would have to rely on, it has to have some sort of weakness, so it would have to rely on a golden rule of taking all the virus counters that you have and putting them on one stealth card. That would go a long way towards... And turning it into a bank, basically. Yeah, you know. that would go a long way towards improving the stealth uh, subtypes viability. I, yeah, I'd have to see if all virus counters would be too good, but uh, I think the idea's got merit, for sure. I would like to see them do that. Yeah, and you know, I, I'll tell you, at Plugged In, everybody was running Gorman Drips, and it would definitely give oh, you some card. more options. It gives me fits on them corp sometimes, man. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, me. Um, I think that there's going to be um, assets that say res only if the runner is tagged, that only turn on if you can tag the runner and then do something fantastic. Probably, I don't know, maybe a one-shot effect, like trash this, do a thing, but... Um, that's my prediction, is assets that key off of tag states. That's good. That's a good one. Because you can imagine, like, like a Wayland security force, like an upgraded version of a dedicated response team, like the special forces or whatever, corporate, corporate strike team, where res only if the runner is tagged, trash do whatever, trash, a hard, trash some hardware, trash a resource, and do 2 me damage or something like that, you know? Like, I know where you are. I'm, sending, I'm scrambling the strike team right now. Or, you know, NBN... Res only if the runner is tagged, and then, um, I don't know, do something bad. <laughs> I, that one got away from me. But you A know dedicated response team, ICE. No, not ICE as an asset, as I'm saying. Res only if the runner is tagged. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, so I would say, for me, I've been, I've been stewing on this one, but have only articulated it at this point. And that is, I would like to see an Anarch resource that 
it would have to be a high influence one because we've talked about the fact that they NR need don't really have that you know Boy, that, do they. that high influence kind of defining card but i'd love to see a high influence anarch resource that's tutoring for hardware a resource that tutors for hardware yeah i see no it would have to be high influence and it would you'd have to have some interesting caveats on there and i think that the high the high influence is one of them but the fact that it's a resource for hardware and the fact that anarchs don't have a lot of hardware they're not really a hardware faction they only got a few pieces right what yeah. do they have cyber feeder and the consoles yep that's it that's yeah, it yeah yeah so that's that's all they've got right now is that cyber feeder and that and that uh the two consoles so, you're, so but, you're, you know I, I think that it would be it would then make the cons the the prospect of splashing from other factions into yeah, yours was, their was, hardware uh uh you know uh, i was just gonna say you're you're counting on the on that being a defining archetype for anarchs as hey we got this high influence hard hardware tutor but no hardware splash it from other factions as opposed to the traditional don't be anarch just splash anarch cards <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that they could take the concept and make it work some other way and go, yo, this is the anarchist cookbook and we're going we're gonna to have event recursion or something like that. There's definitely other ways to express the concept, but I would love to see an anarch high influence, you know, tutoring card. That's basically the concept. There's different ways to express it. There's probably better ways to express it, but that's what I'd love to see, the anarchist cookbook. Let's go. <laughs> All right, and uh, my last card... Um... I'm seeing that in the, I, I'm just positive in the future they're going to expand the uh, the design space around traces um, a little more. So um, I, I think they'll uh, that it'll we'll see a card um, not dissimilar to like Shiloh City Grid that hey whenever there's a successful trace in the server do something as a way to incentivize incentivize trace decks. Um, and I was expecting it if you want me to get specific I was expecting to see something like a like a feedback concept where, hey, the trace gets turned up to 11, and so just tracing you is bad for you, and have it, you know, maybe a Gentechi upgrade or something that, hey, a tra when a trace in the server is successful, do one net damage. Make it four influence if you want. That way it's not just, you know, easily death switch for NBN, but, um, you know, as a way to, to make traces a little, uh, a little more punishing or, or to, to incentivize the corp to spend more on them and win them, and then incentivize the runner to counter them. All right. For our next section, we have a uh, we want to delve into the tournament strategies and uh, just you know honestly not as much on the deck building aspects, but really more in the relational aspects. If you are playing and going into tournaments repeatedly uh we realize that this podcast is heard around the world you know we've got more than a dozen countries that this is listened to in so we just want to send some love while i get the chance to to the uk to all of the eu and all the people that are listening i even saw that there were some people listening into the ukraine i actually happen to be part ukrainian so shout out to to the ukraine but um the tournaments that they're running worldwide, we were super excited about Kronos Protocol and uh, what's going on over there in Europe. We're, we're very uh, pumped to see what's going on out there and, and have you guys having a major voice. And, you, you know, we know that Lucas and the rest of the team 
here in uh, Minnesota, <laughs> uh, <laughs> were listening to Europe when they were really uh, trying to get a voice in the shaping of the meta and the shaping of the game. So we're excited about that. But we want to talk a little bit about tournaments. And uh, the first point that I wanted to bring up was just a really basic one. You may laugh at this, but this is actually a real concern in from the the games that I've played in. And that is just like hygiene. A lot of times these tournaments start later at night. They're at 5 or 6 in the afternoon. They're catching people after work. And you've already worked a full day. And then you're going to this tournament that you, you know, you're excited for, but it's your hobby. Listen, you need to respect the rest of the people <laughs> that are there at this tournament and make sure that you showered and you washed your butt because <laughs> I'm just going to say it, man. I'm just going to tell you right now because we cannot have this, man. There, oh. these, there is 50 geeks in a room playing a card game. Dude, you need to just make sure that you're not smelling... You know like I mean? a felon. Like a felon right now, man. For real. So I'm just going to call it out and say it. I love you guys, but watch your butt. I hope that maybe the uh, it's not a big a deal out in the uh, the non-American parts of the world. Maybe they're, maybe they're less cursed by it. Maybe that's a thing. Maybe that's just our view. Maybe that's America. Our, well, maybe it's Europe, too. <laughs> maybe you know, it's the Midwest. Saying, maybe it's just the Midwest. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm a New Yorker born and raised, so... But anyway, yeah, I just wanted to say hygiene, like, make sure you're washed up, ready. Because on honestly, on a winning strategy, you are a lot less distracted if you are not uncomfortable and kind of concentrated on your, your breath or And you're anything. refreshed. Yeah. You're, when you're fresh and ready element, to go, man, for absolutely. sure. You, so. You're going to play for five, six hours. I mean, you. yeah, being being top of your form in all respects is what you're saying, right? I agree with that. I, I just want to say that because you might not be distracted by it and you may even be trying to rely on it as a strategy <laughs> to distract your opponent. <laughs> but honestly, like, oh, no. you don't want to run that risk oh, that no. the TO just goes, hey, bro, listen, you know, you're not ready for this tournament, clearly. You are not reaching the standards that we are going for and we're just going to we're just going to ask you to leave or not participate because you're not you're not ready you know oh man you know cuz I, I would as a TO I would not hesitate to do that if somebody came in my tournament that was really you know grossly odoriferous 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 I would just I would say listen you're not ready love you come back some other time you know we have a lot of grace for you but this is just not an acceptable you know what i mean this is just not an acceptable no but state. you're right it needs to be said it's sad it you know it has to be at some point and that segues into uh which part manners oh yeah 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 um and you know as an etiquette thing i think it's important that um you know we get i'm really guilty of this myself i get into that flow you know where i'm like uh I run, I pay my five, like, give me the top card of R&D already, you know, hurry, 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 go, go, go. Yeah. And in a tournament setting, that's just not good. Um, you need to announce very clearly paid actions you take and name them as such. You know, when you when you make a run, I think the best course would be to just clearly state, okay, I, I'm going to spend a click, I make a run on this remote server. That means I approach whatever, I approach the pop-up window, I encounter it, you get your credit. I Okay, then I pay the one for the subroutine. Then I approach... You know, Ichi 1.0. I pay two credits twice to pump them up to four, and then I spend three credits to break three subroutines. You know, just just it's very helpful because there may be some point where they go, wait, 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 hold on, I want to res my experiential data because that happens, or you know, <laughs> or they say, you know, hey, hang on, I want to forfeit my false lead so you can't click through some stuff. You know, they, they're 
I I want to remove my Project Woten tokens and give some end the run subs. You, you know you don't you don't know. Yeah, and because the game is such an interaction heavy game, you know, one of the things that we I know that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, but I I. You know, there are things that you can do, assets you res, things like that, upgrades, uh, or Rear Valley or a Ronin, that affect the runner's turn. And so if the runner is rushing through their turn, yeah. going, I take four, you know, I take eight, your turn. And it's like, okay, between your second and third click, I res this. And so you're kind of rewinding the clock and yeah. going, no, 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 you just rushed through that. Here's what actually happened. Yeah, it's not you know, And then the runner is then re-scrambling to go through things. And, and it, it really, if you're deliberate about your actions, you're concise and clear. It is such, it is a good manners. It creates healthy interactions. It creates clarity. And then you play more quality games. It actually helps you go through it faster and with more learning and with a greater maturity on your game when you do it like yeah, that. Yeah. I just want to put that out. There's there. no need that, there's no reason for it to take five extra minutes. You just say, okay, click when I take two. You look at your opponent. If they do anything other than nod or just look at you, then you can, you know, you pause for a beat. Yeah. I take two. Exactly. Okay, I take two. Okay, take two. Yeah, exactly. There's I take two, your turn. No need you know, to dramatize. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And I mean, you know, it's not always a thing, but if I've had it happen. I had a false lead scored. I mean, I had a false lead scored, and I, I wanted to monitor the runner's credits because I had in my mind how much exactly the math, okay, if they have more than this many credits, they can get into my remote. And there was a point at which it was like, okay, I take two, I take two. Hold the phone. You lose your last two clicks. Now I'm going to score my agenda, you know? So you never know. It, it comes up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, you know, we both... Yeah, I give those examples of a, a rural valley, which is, you know, they may be prepping for a run, and then I go, okay, I'm going to spend the six. So you yeah. know that if you're going to run if, on this the next turn, you know, and throw them off their tempo. If click I take the money from Katie, then you're like, okay, well, then right away I res rural valley. Because exactly. <laughs> the run is coming. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. So, um, and then, you know, on the manners thing, um, it's double it's It's two-sided. Side number one is don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be, you know, I know it's a tournament and it's super serious business, but don't be afraid if somebody rises ice and you don't know it, you know, it's no, there's no shame in saying, hey, can I see that ice? I want to yeah. read what it is. You ask know? to and, see the ice. Yeah, ask to see ask it. Ask to touch somebody else's card. It's man. okay. Just be, yeah, they're, they're it's sleeping okay, anyway. but yeah, it's but okay. ask, but ask. But yeah. ask before you do it. And then, on the other side, you know, if you're playing with somebody and they ask to see your cards, don't, don't take it as an affront. They just, yeah. they want to bring their A game too. And yeah, and don't be, you know, I get, I, I will admit, occasionally I get exasperated if uh, yeah, someone's card knowledge is not there or they're more used to one particular faction or, or identity than another and they're they're a little under par, you know. Give them, those, give them those opportunities. Make sure that you're keeping your focus and your tempo in case and be gracious. Just smile to yourself and know, hey, if his card knowledge isn't that good, I'll probably beat this guy. <laughs> Uh, and you know, in the same breath, don't be afraid to call a judge if you think something is is fishy. You know, I mean, everybody wants to compete fairly, and that includes your opponent, hopefully. So you know, it's not an insult to say, "Hey, I want a judge just to clarify this." I, you know, because it happens informally at our netrunner night all the time. You know, hey, hey, is it, does anybody know when I res Tears Hand? How does that work? You know, I mean, it's it's the same thing except that in tournament, it's got to be more formal. You gotta you gotta invoke the formal authority. Yeah. I mean, so, last night, would somebody inside jobbed at uh, TMI, and they're going, okay, well, that's not a subroutine that the the res trace, you know, the res dependent 
the, the yeah the res dependent trace that's on that ice is a pre subroutine aspect of yeah, the ice. Yeah, it happens and, on approach. You know, and so not that encounter, was, and so it actually does matter exactly. whether or not it's res when the inside job comes in. Yeah, that's a valid question. And I mean, so that no, was a really good. Okay, this is a deep level of interaction yeah, that we're discussing. It's a here deep game. To yeah, to to especially to somebody that you know has only a couple of months worth of playing it. You know, by all means, yeah. Um, then I think, uh, my, my other piece of advice would be, um, don't bring a slow deck. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it, by slow deck, what I mean is, if you have a cute, uh, data leak reversal deck whose entire purpose is I'm going to mill the corp out of cards, don't, don't bring that deck. And the reason I say that is because if you're bringing a deck that you know grinds out incremental advantage over a 40 or 50 minute game, you're not going to have enough time left for, um, for the second match. Or you're going to go to time on the on the match that you play that deck with, and that's you know then you're rolling the dice, seeing how far you actually come. I guess now they've changed the rules so that you might still split the prestige, but still, wouldn't you rather have the prestige than split it with your opponent? Or if you're if you do um, make a, make the cut to elimination and you do go back to the old school, um, you know whoever has more agenda points wins. Well, why roll those dice? I'm not saying that every deck has to be criminal rush, although no doubt sixty percent of the decks will be, but uh, you know just don't. Don't bring a slow, combo-rific deck that you know, having played it, takes a longer time to, to pull out a win. I mean, there's, there's plenty of viable decks that you can bring that don't have to be rush decks, but, you know, they're not a cerebral imaging, I'm going to stall until I have all the combo cards in my hand and then go. I mean, that's... If you ask me, it, I guess it's just personal advice, but if you ask me, that's just asking it to go to time, and when you go to time you are kind of gambling on where you think you'll be at, the, at that point in time as opposed to knowing that you will have won the match. Does that, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. A tournament, you know, they have a time limit for a reason and uh, trying, to go, trying to go the full 12 rounds uh, when it's, and relying, relying on a judge's decision is not... No. And you don't know who you're going to play. You might yeah. find you play a guy, I mean, I... No, no disrespect whatsoever meant to this gentleman, but I played a guy in regionals, and he was a very slow player. And, I mean, you know, he, like I said earlier, he wanted to bring his A game just as much as I did. And I wasn't running a slow deck by any means. I was running a, a criminal deck. But, um, you know, we actually still wound up going to time. So it's so much worse if you bring a deck that you know, like, okay, it plays slow, but it grinds it out. I, I think it's a mistake. I think you, knowing you go to time... Planning on going to time is not a good thing in a tournament setting. Word. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. Okay, so last one. I, I'm going to boil it down, make it real simple before we go on to the to kind of the operational and logistic aspects of running a tournament. My last uh, encouragement to our listening audience, when you go to a tournament, make sure that you bring water and something like a snack or something like that to keep regulate your blood sugar up. keep your regulate your glycemic index yeah man for real this is this is actually something that really helps out with focus and um maintaining an even keel uh, for a sustained amount of time tournaments typically run somewhere on the order of seven hours and so if you want to be fresh at the end of the night not jittery not pounding red bulls or whatever you know if you have to rely on some sort of seriously artificial stimulant to maintain your energy level you're probably going to be swinging a little bit um 
in your moods and in your you know focus so if you want to maintain a, a, a steady grind on somebody and really hone in and have the best winning strategy i would personally recommend just having some water on hand take care of yourself before you go into that tournament make sure you get a a breath mint shower have some you know have some something to eat and go in there fresh and ready to go and uh, you'll t you'll have a much better experience. Yeah, and uh, you know what? One last thing for my thing that I, I wanted to say is um, you talk about keeping an even keel, and this ties right into that, is uh, I found, and this is personal experience, and I'm sure that I'm not the only one who's, who's experienced this, you need to have a game plan for your deck, and you have to stick to it. How, you know, I, I came into regionals, and I had a game plan, and my first match did not go well for me, and it put me off kilter, and I questioned what my deck was after and thought, oh, maybe this is the wrong game plan. And then I played my deck totally wrong. You know, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't as aggressive as I should have been. I got scared. I backed off. And I didn't do well in the next couple of matches. You know, if you build a, you build a deck with a purpose in mind and you need to play to its strengths, if you lose your confidence, you lose your focus, you lose sight of your game plan, um, then you're not playing to your deck's strengths. Well, what, what are you playing to at that point, right? Like... You need to you need to know what your deck is built to do, and then just do it. And if you lose, just accept that sometimes you're gonna lose. I mean, yeah. no, no. Maybe you had a bad matchup. Maybe you had a bad hand. Maybe you know. Maybe you even made the wrong decision. Just make a better one next time. But, but just stick to what your overall game plan is. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, half the time I think I think you're totally right, and I would say the way that I would phrase it is play your deck against your opponent, not your opponent against your deck. There you go. Yeah. And that is because, you know, you have a lot more interaction and control over your deck versus your opponent rather than trying to double second guess your opponent versus your deck. Yeah. No, so, that's a good formulation. I like that. Yeah. Well, I talk a lot. And one of the things I talk about is tournaments. I have enjoyed tournaments in a variety of endeavors. Like I, I did some magic tournaments. I was at a what I understand now to be kind of like an infamous magic tournament I was at in New York uh, where somebody ripped up a card and oh. dropped it <gasps> on the board. Dropped uh, it. It was, yeah, it was an oh, expensive card. no. And I told, you know, it's funny. I was in the card store telling the story, and the guy's like, yeah, we all know about that. Like, that's entered magic Infamy. player lore. And I'm like, yeah, I was there. Like, I saw that, and that's weird. But, um... Tournament running a tournament, I, I would say some of the top aspects of of that you got to keep in mind is make sure that you have all of the prerequisite material on hand ready for all the people to access. Meaning, have copies of the FAQ printed out, have copies of the interaction charts printed out, like the timing structure of a run and all that other stuff. Just print out a couple of copies of that and have it available for all the tables. That way somebody could quickly grab it and it's not this, oh, I'll pull it up on my phone, my iPad, yeah. and it becomes this kind of like race to see who can access it first and yada yada. You don't want that. You want to have all the materials ready for everyone already at the start of the tournament. You know, have all that ready, have all the, um, have all of the material anyone could possibly want for all the TOs and all the tables already ready. Yeah, even, I mean, I didn't have one for everybody, but I had a copy of both the uh, turn structure, the timing structure, and the FAQ, so I, both is the wrong word. I had one of each of all those three documents available for the tournaments that I ran, just so that at least I could cite my sources, you know, explain my reasoning to somebody, because sometimes, you know, it's not obvious, some of these card interactions are not immediately apparent and yeah. the underlying logic is that's why we have errata yeah well one piece pawn 
But yeah. uh, it's done a good job so far of not having errata, just having some interesting rulings. But um, and then uh, you know, on top of that, uh, so yeah, that's that's obvious. You need to have that stuff, and you need to know it. <laughs> having the FAQ printed out is is uh, a good first step. But even better would be um, at least knowing that when Femme Fatale encounters uh, Data Raven, the bypass hits first, so you don't take the tag. But um, and now watch, they'll reverse that ruling in six months, and this podcast will be out of date. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. Uh, no, anyway, I doubt it. But uh, And then the other thing is, based on my direct experience, um, deck lists, man. Not only are deck lists a must, but check them. Make the list, check it twice, find out who's naughty or nice, be Santa up in that tournament, because uh, I personal anecdote time, I had deck lists uh, for an eight-man tournament I ran, and I thought that I should maybe mute my phone and we should <laughs> take over. Damn it. No, keep going. No, keep going. All right. Well, um, I so I had the deck list for everybody, and I thought that would be good enough. And so uh, we we went with the tournament, and then at the end of round one, I figured out that some guy between making the deck list and packing his cards in his box misplaced two copies of Priority Requisition in his Wayland deck. So we reached the end of round one, and the runner's going, "Really, dude? R and D's like five cards tall. I should have hit an agenda by now. This is nuts." And he finally hit the last piece, or the last agenda card to win the game. There were only 15 points of agendas in that in that 49 card, I guess 47 card deck. Um, so obviously it wasn't tournament legal. Uh, and and I, you know, as TO, I figured, okay, the runner won the game, so it's good enough. Because my my judgment would have been, well, you forfeit to the runner because you didn't have a have a good tournament ready deck. And some gentle soul loaned the guy his uh, his missing copies of Priority Requisition. He had brought his whole card set with him and said, here, you can take your two copies of Priority Requisition and just give them back to me when you're done. But, um, you know, all of that could have been averted if I had gone through and checked every deck by hand, compared, you know, I didn't have to compare it against the deck list. I could have just gone on the numbers. Does it have 49 cards like it says it does? Does it have 15 points of influence like it says it does? Does it have 20 or 21 points of agendas like it says it does? You know, a basic cursory check. Um, sure, it takes a little time, but... I'm I'm sort of lucky that things turned out the way they did, where the runner won anyway. But it could have been a lot worse, you know. It, yeah. If it were other cards that were missing or added or yeah. whatever, I mean, you know, if somebody's over their influence and didn't realize it, you know, it happens online as an honest mistake all the time. Somebody posts a deck list and they're like, "Oh, I'll make these changes and I'll make these changes," and then some other helpful poster goes, "Yo, dude, you're three influence over. You need to cut back." Oh crap! I didn't realize. If that hadn't happened, they might have gone to a tournament with that and been like, "Yeah, good." Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mean, you, know, you don't want beef. You don't want beef at a tournament. Right. You don't want people, you know, flustered and yada, yada. I mean, I think it really, you may say to us, Brody, Greg of the Broadband Podcast, <laughs> you may say to us, yo, I, you know, I know the people in my meta. It's all cool. Like, if something like that happens, we'll figure it out. We'll smooth it over. You know, we'll we'll figure out something to make this work, and and you know, in your in your example, it worked out, right? Well, it'll work out. Well, you know what? As it so happened, that did work out for that runner, and he did win. But you know, how would have that corp have felt if after the ruling, you know, after the match, Brody had to say, you know what, you lose anyway, even though you you won that. Let's say you scored that, and then the corp won it. He, I, you know what? I overrule you, and you lose that because your deck wasn't, wasn't a fair win. Yeah. yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't you know the the fact that those those agendas weren't missing totally throughout the ratio and the and the pacing of the game anyway. You know, who's to say their agendas wouldn't have come out earlier in the or game? Or who's to say we'd have caught that round one? 
Yeah. If somebody, so, you know, if, if that guy had, uh, if the runner had scored some lucky agendas early on, we might not have known until way late in the tournament. I mean, that could have been bad. Yeah. So I would encourage everyone, you want to run some tournaments, you want to do that, make sure you've got all the records of material ready. Make sure that you've got enough TOs to handle the amount of people that you're going to have at the tournament. You need to do, if you have over 30 people, make sure that you have more than one TO checking yeah, everything don't run out. that solo. Check the deck. Yeah, check the decks, man. Check the decks. If you have the you know make sure you have the manpower don't try and just run a tournament without you know planning it out so we want to encourage that which leads us to our next segment which for me is my my joy in life and that is marketing you want you want to run a tournament let's blow it up one of the best ways to get your tournaments with a good amount of people and revitalize your meta, have a healthy interaction with people there. It's to call the other surrounding cities and stores and metas that are there. Reach out to people. Don't just post it on one forum or you know BGG or just do online interaction. Call the other store, see how many players they have, and see what the best way to get in touch with those players are. You know, I want to reach out to all the surrounding cities. We're here. We happen to be here in KC, the home of Google Fiber. That shout out Woo. to Google. Yeah, we love you guys, even though you're watching everything we do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we you know, we're reaching out to the guys down in Springfield, Crash Space Podcast, love you guys. You know, we're gonna reach out to the St. Louis guys, to the I've already spoken with Steven and those guys who love them at Team Covenant. We're reaching out to the Omaha people, like we love our surrounding meta. We say bring it on. Like we want we were gonna run a tournament in the next couple of months that we're gonna be announcing that. They were gonna have some really cool interactions going on. We've got a lot of things in the works and a good way to keep that healthy is to reach out to those other people and talk to them. Don't just post it and hope people come. Yes, we're voracious. Netrunners are incredible. Like, I, it blows me away that regular games on Twitch TV, you know, regular matches, not even tournaments, not even did it, have hundreds of views. You know, I look at some of the the podcasts and some of the the videos that people put up, little tutorials and things like that that people are just doing in their house, silly little fun stuff with NBA that's or I mean uh, with uh, for Netrunner that's not necessarily the you know the most high polished production values or whatever it's just for the love of the game but it's got hundreds of views and we love the fact that our podcast over a dozen countries well over 600 plays you know that's awesome to us and we want to honor that and make sure that we do a good job so one of the ways you can blow up your tournament if you're gonna run it do a good job reach out to those surrounding cities and uh, build a community, involve, involve the community, right? Word. We run nets. So excited to uh -huh. do a little bit of uh, a, a retrospective. Normally what we do is in the third act, we do kind of a, a current event, a book, and then a Q&A. So for this one, our last, you know, even though we're, we're you're going to be hearing this in the first quarter of 2014, but we're, like I said, recording it in, at the end. Today's the 28th. So um, we want to do a, a bit of a retrospective, look back at uh, the arc of what's happened in Netrunner. And uh, so let's just start out. Brody, you've done some great research, and as you do what you do. <laughs> I don't know I'd call it great. But, uh, you know, in the first quarter, uh, talk a little bit about some of the things that we saw Arise. Well, uh, it was important to know that going into 2013, uh, we'd just seen the death of Big Ice. Um, I remember that being a big thing. 
the end of 2012 when Emergency Shutdown came out and, and really put the nail in the coffin of the Big Ice archetype. So that was the situation when we roll into 2013. And then in quarter one, Cyber Exodus came out with Personal Workshop and everybody lost their minds. Yeah. Noise Shop was huge. Well, I don't know about huge, but it was definitely a thing you had to worry about where your yeah. opponent would play noise and drop a personal workshop and pile all sorts of viruses on it and then make his glory run and use paid abilities, stim hack, what have you, to install all of the viruses in one fell swoop at an archives run. So the corp would trash like seven, eight, nine, ten cards off the top of R&D and, the, and uh, the runner would just bank on those being enough agendas to win the game. Usually because before he just sat there with a pile of credits and just sniped agendas out of whatever remotes that got put down. It was, uh, I remember it being a, a pain. Um, so that was a big thing in the quarter one. And then quarter two, Humanity Shadow dropped and Katie Jones and Andromeda forever changed the meta. We still see Andromeda being yeah. ridiculously good. And Katie Jones is like in almost all the top tournament winning decks. Yeah. So those two quarters marked the era of runner ascendance yeah. where where you know people were starting to complain that the game was too biased in favor of the runner even though in reality I was looking up some of the some of the stats on that and it looked like in tournaments in those first two quarters not just in tournaments but just like in general from looking at forums and other stuff from what limited research I did it looked like runners were really only winning slightly more than half they, they were. so it wasn't as broken as people were feeling it's no. just that between well, the head start that Andromeda gives you in hand and the head and the the burst that Katie gives you mid game or whenever you you know trigger her throughout the game yeah it's you know the between those two things it really gave a runners a good leg up as was, well they should be. <laughs> well, you and, evil corporate <laughs> bastard. And there is something to be said. I mean, I think we've seen it said before that um, if you're going to have an imbalance in the game, you want it imbalanced in the direction of action rather than inaction. You want it imbalanced in the runner's favor because they're making runs and forcing the corp to interact with them and not in favor of the corp shutting the runner out, leading to a chilling effect in the game. But all of that said, the first two quarters, first half of 2013, marked the ascendancy of the runner um, and, and people started to really question if this was good for balance. Then, quarter three, uh, creation and control dropped. It didn't really strengthen. Everybody was all mad because, like, HB Fast Advance was the winning archetype because of all the, all the, um, the, the strong runners had basically kind of squeezed out most of the other, um, corp archetypes in tournament settings and people were complaining like is shaper i mean is hb really in need of a power boost a whole yeah. expansion devoted to them but it turned out that, it, that cnc didn't uh sorry creation and control really didn't boost hb's power level too much it broadened what they were capable of doing but it didn't really add a lot of uh tools in the fast advance wheelhouse whereas shaper's yeah. got a huge boost atman uh, Self-modifying code, dirty laundry, scavenge, I mean, just all sorts of tricks that brought... Oh, clone chip was in there, too, I think. Um, all sorts of stuff that oh, brought right. shapers into the competitive scene in a way that they hadn't been before that. The Catman deck. Yeah, the infamous Catman, yeah. Yeah, um... Yeah, that fixed-strength breaker where you just, you know, you had 0, 3, and 5, and you just kind of <sighs> smashed over and over again. I mentioned that last podcast, that horrifying moment yeah. as the corp when you first face that Anatman deck, and you go... Oh my God! They can hit any of my servers for three credits. Yeah. Like, wh 
what do I do other than sigh, go home and rebuild my deck? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you bring up a good point real succinctly is that, you know, when that when when the music factory, also known as CNC, came out <laughs> was when it came out, you know, people really were looking at HB like, you know, already this was an incredible faction that you just dumped a ton of cards on. You know, Shaper, I could see how it needed a little oh, bit yeah, of a boost, boost as far as aggression and tournament viability, but HB already had so much. And then at the tail end of it, just when you think that the that HB would be at the apex of leveraging all the possible combos from creation and control, we actually see Wayland winning most of yeah. it. Yeah. You know, yeah. right when you would expect HB to be fully leveraged with all those cards, actually, no. People were loving um, Wayland and NBN, which is what I was talking about before. It's like, as soon as you dump a bunch of cards in one faction, everybody's like, I'm going to go do this other thing because I'm cool and nobody will see it coming. And everybody did it and it worked. That's what's great about the, the living card game aspect, right? The ever-changing meta. Um, and in quarter three saw the rise and fall of, of noise because uh, at the beginning of the quarter, uh, Sahasara came out and made him even better. And then uh, uh, Jackson Howard came and kicked him in the teeth and told him to go home and never darken our doorsteps again. And now noise is he's still kind of out there in limbo. Um, the, the other big thing in quarter three was the updated FAQ where um, two big changes that I remember coming around was the Femme Fatale reversal, where at first uh, the ruling in, via email from Lucas was you couldn't use Cyberfeeder credits on Femme's bypass because it was supposedly only for um, like paid abilities, not the, not the triggered abilities. And it was a really unintuitive and, and counterintuitive ruling, and, and people were like, what? And then the FAQ came out, and they are like, no, you can use Cyberfeeder credits for Femme's bypass. It's totally legit. And then the other thing was uh, there was like a, a woodcutter. There was it was more than just woodcutter, but woodcutter was the great example of this um, of this interaction where you'd reach null states in the game. Where okay, woodcutter, how many subroutines does it have? It doesn't have any. So uh, when I checked it with Chum to see if any of its subroutines were broken, it doesn't have any subroutines. So it creates like a null exception. Like yeah. programmers out there know what I'm talking about. Watch your pointers. Yeah. No null pointers, but. Um, yeah, so, uh, no, it's a thing. Anyway, I know, no, I know it but, is. Uh, so then you'd hit this thing where, like, Chum, uh, yes, Chum fires. And, and then the FAQ came out, and they are like, no, we're going to, it was a difficult decision for us because we liked the computerish idea of an, of an unknown state. Like, a, it's not a yes, it's not a no, it's kind of a null. Kind of like what happens when you trash an asset in a server that the runner runs on. It doesn't run successfully or unsuccessfully, or it doesn't end successfully or unsuccessfully. It just terminates abruptly, and there's no neither successful nor unsuccessful effects trigger. There was like a similar thing, but they were like, no, we want to get rid of that. It's better that the game be clearer and, and more understandable than that the game have neat, cute interactions. So from now on, all include zero. If a woodcutter has no subroutines, if the runner has broken all, all of its subroutines include zero. So yes, Chum does not fire. Oversight AI will trash a woodcutter with no subs. I mean, they, it was a good ruling. And, uh, but it, you know, there was a big deal when it came out, especially because of the femme thing. It's a solid ruling yeah. that, you know, may break the wall, fourth wall of, you know, exposing game mechanics slightly, but it was worth it. Yeah, it, exactly. It was worth it for the sake of the game other than, you know, over being just cute. Uh, and then lastly, this one will be more fresh in everyone's minds because we just lived it. Quarter four was the plugged in tour. Very big deal. Um, the broadband podcast launch. That yes. wasn't nothing. Yeah. Uh, we hope. 
Second Thoughts and Malatempora dropped, and we're beginning to see the pendulum swing back the other way. It started with opening moves, I feel, but um, now it's kind of, we're reaching in the age of the corp where a lot of tools they're getting um, with each successive data pack, whereas the runner's tools are not quite as amazing. But at the close of the year, in the 11th hour, yeah. Reina Roja we has the ice, the ice tax emerge. Yes, so, you know, who knows what the future will bring. We, we're looking eagerly forward to uh, True Colors and, and the rest of all the new cards in 2014. Here we go. Yeah. That's that's the the year in a nutshell. Fantastic retrospective, Brody Benson. High five, bro. Yeah, boom. All right, woof, man, that's a that was a that was a fast advance uh, yeah. retrospective. I there. rushed that out. Were you rushed that uh, that agenda? You well know played. me, I play rush decks. Well played. So um, for the. Uh, for, so that was kind of replaced our current event was a retrospective and I am going to do a book this week but in a break from what our normally what I do in a book is kind of cyberpunk literature I talk a little bit you know I kind of cover uh, you know I've done um, Neuromancer and Distraction and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep so I've done novels in the past well this one I'm going to do a little something different and that is the book I'm going to talk about today is one by someone called James Boyle it's called Shamans software and spleens and the the subtitle of it is law and the construction of the information society this book again i want to stick to seminal works and that means that this is a book that many many movements and concepts arose from when this gentleman wrote this book he basically laid the groundwork for a lot of uh, and laid out foundational concepts and ideas that were exposited were expanded upon by the eff the electronic frontier foundation Concepts like the Creative Commons licensing and uh, the GNU software license. So a lot of things kind of came out from what he laid out in this book and what he was noticing the trends uh, and kind of beginning to lay an intellectual framework for people to understand why we need a Creative Commons, why we need GNU software license. These are not merely artistic um, constructs that are uh, nice to have and kind of these fancy fancy pants kind of things that are frilly and not really needed. These are necessary aspects of creative society. One of the other things that he, the way he lays out these these intellectual constructs and concepts for people, but the way that he kind of hones in on it is talking about the romantic concept of an author. And that is important because when we talk about blackmail or we talk about some of these things that are ethical issues, what that boils down to is a discussion on authorship. And so he uses that premise to lay out the need for some of these other um, legal and societal constructs for us to begin to wrestle through the issues of authorship and wrestle through these issues of what is good for society. I mean, um, is it good that, you know, some that our public domain is so sparse in comparison to what we in common vernacular use, you know, everybody says, you know, society is built on the shoulder of giants and, and we, we've built, much of what we use every day in the you know from the technology we use in roads and books to um 
to the way that we deal with each other, uh, relational concepts wise, th these things are were well used tools. And so if you had to, um, if you had to pay the inventor of a word every time you used it in a conversation, <laughs> you know, it, it, it would really stunt the growth of society. And so he kind of lays out some of these quandaries and conundrums. And uh, Brody, I know that you uh, were looking into Creative Commons and GU software licenses. And uh, did you discover anything cool in your um, wondering? Well, um, I'm actually, now I need to read this book now that you mention it because it seems really, really interesting. I have a, um, not just because I have a couple of friends who graduated law school and um, one of them really wants to get into IP law and it's nice to be able to hold my own in a conversation with her. But it, as you were saying, I was looking at uh, some of the stuff, the Creative Commons licenses, and I was really intrigued by the first um, iteration of Copyleft, mm. it, you know, which for the, for the readers who don't know, it was, um, from what I can tell, a very shrewd way of using copyright law and subverting its purpose. So instead of closing off roads to uh, use of a work. It was a license that was designed to say any derivatives or copies of this work have to be free. They have to be available for people to use and, and they have to be, you have to include this license which says as part of its terms that the work can be distributed for free. And, and, and I can take you to court and say, you took my work and you didn't make it free. Which is the opposite of what we think of as copyright which is you took my work and didn't pay me for it. Yeah. It's you took my work and then you, you charged. Yeah, and that's such a uh, an interesting you know hack of the legal framework. Yeah, to to the purposes of the of the free software movement or whatever else. I mean, that the, I I have to applaud that that very is that shaper and art, Greg. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because it is uh, I it's a it's a data leak reversal for sure. Yeah. So it, it, you know, when you, when you require, one of the things that creative commons does is require attribution. You know, there's different licenses that are listed underneath that. I would encourage everybody to look into what the EFF is doing. If you enjoy playing Netrunner, then, um, these these elements and this wrestling this ethical issue you know a lot of people remember Napster and all the other stuff they you know they were like oh well you know these artists are getting screwed out of their money so I might as well just download it for free I'm a fan it's cool we're cool everything's cool but I would encourage you to actually wrestle these issues out and begin to take a look at the framework for these things and why we do what we do and uh, to to begin to mature your position on some of this stuff it's really well worth it. Uh, you know, one of the things that we um, have in our community, and I'm going to take a pause for the cause right here and just say <laughs> I want to thank DB0. You know, he created the Octagon, and this directly ties into these issues. So if you have ever gone online and played D, uh, on the Octagon, you know that it's not like a one, two, three, you know, uh, it's not... It's it, not a one-to-one -one of... of Netrunner. I mean, we try. He tries very hard. Well, he framed not... it out in such a way that it had some barriers to entry, yeah. that you had to scan things, and it's not, the UI is not, you know, all respect, much props to DB0, but the UI is not overly intuitive. I mean, it's not right. as if, uh, you know, it's not Johnny Ivey didn't, didn't design this, <laughs> you know? So... The, there is some barrier to entry there, but it's 
it for the hardcore this is a fantastic way to play when you're isolated maybe you can't get that many games in but you can play through this and he took some pains i'm sure fantasy fight lucas if you're listening i'm sure you know about this and we you know the community is behind both of these aspects i'm sure we want to find a way to make this work together so everybody's getting honored you know and everybody is is enjoying the framework that's there and and finding a way to navigate it that everything is cool you know and everything doesn't always work out but wrestling out these issues of authorship and copyright and looking at that that's why we have different factions in the game that's why there is different ideologies that are going to bat that's why there's shaper that's why there's anarch that's why there's people that are just in it for the money that's why Wayland does what it does and that's why you know these different corporations and uh factions have their motivations and they get to tell their story well i would encourage you to read the book shamans software and spleens because it helps you to tell your story and formulate your opinion on that subject So the last segment on the podcast is usually either a beginner's quarter or a Q&A. We're kind of batting around this last aspect. It really is just us talking about <laughs> yeah. another concept and right. laying it out there. So I need to... Quick Q&A. We ask, we answer. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a Q&A between Brody and I. Yeah. So, um, anyway, that's that. So what we're going to talk about is ice ratios and kind of establishing them for uh, the corporation and what's some good methods of doing that. I got a buddy down in Florida that's doing an Excel spreadsheet for it and he looks at what type of, you know, what types, res costs, yeah. you know, subtypes yeah. and the aspects and what their subroutine uh, yeah. types are and he gives it different categories. But you have a different method. I do. Um, and this builds off of somewhat, since we were talking last week about debt composition, it, I think it flows from that. Um, I don't quite go the spreadsheet route, but I do I do use a method where I lay my ice out in three columns. He's a badass. I just want to give him a shout out. I yeah. love you, David. Spreadsheet badass. <laughs> um, I, uh, I lay my ice out in three columns. I lay the sentries in one column. I lay the uh, barriers out in one column, and I lay the code gates out in a third. And then I sort them by strength, because typically speaking, with some exceptions, strength correlates to res cost. Um, if you wanted, you could lay it up at res cost instead. But I like to know what what I'm buying, since higher strength dice, generally speaking, is uh, more efficient at, at taxing the runner in terms of credits. Uh, and then, you know, that tells you right away where your deck is weighted. The first time I put my Jinteki Replicating Perfection deck together, I looked at my, I laid them out in the grid, that's what I call it, and then uh, I saw that my sentry column was just piled with ice, that I had like five ice between the barriers and the code gates, and I'm like, that won't do. And critically, I saw that I had ice walls, but I didn't have any higher strength barriers, so, you know, so once Corroder comes out, all my ice, all my barriers are worthless. That's no good, you know, you want... You want the, the ice that will work at low strength in the early game, and then once they get an icebreaker out, you want ice that will still provide value for you late game. But the, um, So that's, that's one way that I use. I would like to see if anybody uh, thinks this is a good method to discuss online. I kind of want to see if this prompts any discussion. Um, the other thing I'll say is that what ice you want uh, differs, obviously, based on what your deck's trying to do. Um, you know, they're... There was some controversy a little while ago because Damon Stone had an interview where he said, oh, people use ETR ice as a crush. Sorry, for those not familiar, ETR just means end the run. It's a subroutine that says end the run. Uh, people use ETR ice as a crush, Damon Stone said, and, you know, the real value is in taxing ice. 
and that was not maybe the most well received and I don't know that I personally agree with it. I really don't know that I do. But I do know that the deck that I run, my Jinteki Replicating Perfection deck, does want taxing ice. It doesn't want end the run ice in great quantities because if my outermost ice just ends the run like it's an ice wall, then the runner runs at it, doesn't spend anything except a click, and then moves on my remote and my remote isn't protected. And NBN has a lot of porous ice infactions, so either they burn all their influence importing ETR ice, or they find some way to work with it, make centrals taxing, and then um, and then protect remotes. I mean, you know, so you got to know what your game plan is. But uh, at the same token, there are some ice that are better at the uh, the rush. They're better for early game. Paperwall is the the obvious exemplar of this. So zero to res, one one strength. It falls away as soon as Corridors hit the game. But by the same token, unless they're packing an inside job or similar trickery, um, or they lucked out into a, a barrier breaker on their first hand, um, you can install that in a remote and put an agenda behind it, and it's safe. It's a you know a gear check to borrow a video game term. You know, do you have a, a fractor? No, then you're not getting in. So. Um, and then there's long game ice. Like I consider Tollbooth pretty long game ice. It's expensive to res, it's expensive to break, and it taxes the runner for three credits every time. But if you if you only put that down uh, and they only hit it once, I, I question if it was worth the eight credits to res. It might be. If it keeps them out of the crucial agenda and wins you the game, then yeah, totally worth it, fine. But um, you know, putting that over your essentials is also great because it makes... Uh, runs on that server prohibitive and Tolbooth is unique because it occupies both sections. It's both ETR and taxing ice, but there are taxing ice, you know, Ichi, Ichi 1.0. Trash a program, trash a program, and then a negligible trace. That, the trash program thing is really big. It's high enough strength that it, it hurts. Um, you know, Ninja and Fem are still reasonably expensive. Mimic's got to use at least a data sucker token and then some credits, so Mimic's probably its worst enemy, but um, you know, that's that's pretty good. If you put that over a central, they're going to run that. You know, they, every time they run that, they have to break it because if they they get their programs trashed, then then all your other and the run ice gets really good because it once again gear checks them. So, um, you know, that's I call that like a taxing ice. They could walk through it, and if it's game point, they may. So you don't necessarily want that defending the game winning agenda, but that's not what you use it for. You know, it's it's there to continually be a thorn in the runner's side and cost them money, whereas your initial investment wasn't that great compared to what you expect they will spend over the course of a game. So you you have anything on that? Well, I think that when you look at ice ratios, the types of subroutines have to directly correlate with what your agendas and assets are. So you build around a concept, make sure your ice not only is monetarily efficient, but it also the subroutines match what you're doing. If you want to draw, drain clicks, drain clicks. If you want to do net damage, do net damage. If you want to... That's a good point too. You know, you always want your subroutines yeah. to line up Make sure that the majority of your ice subroutine matches what the direction your deck is yeah. moving. Yeah, don't put tagging ice in an HB deck that doesn't have tag punishment. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, not that Just I ever do that. Way. Mine's all over the place and I need to work on it. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I need to follow my own advice. But that, that would be one thing that I've definitely learned. Yeah, well, there you go. Yes. Well, here we are at the close of yet another magnum opus of a podcast. <laughs> Love it. Love you guys. Well... Like I always say, get at us, Brody Benson or Gregory James, or Brody Benson and Gregory James at overheardmediagroup.com. You can email us, let us know what you think. 
um, I'm building the site. Probably by the time that you even hear this podcast, the site may be up, but I'll let you know. Um, like I said, we've got some exciting things on the line. I'm working on a joint podcast with another podcaster. We're working on not one, but two um, tournaments, one for us and one a big one that we're going to do. We're working on that. Um, please contact us. Let us know what you think, some suggestions that you have, corrections, um, anything, any thoughts or whatever you want to you get at us. So that's Gregory James or Brody Benson at Overheard Media Group. So, uh, like I said, for the Broadband Podcast, my name is Gregory James. I'm Brody Benson. Are you listening? <laughs>